0: For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now, Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the Law and the Prophets testify. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Good to be with you this morning in our study through Romans. I grew up here in New Jersey, and part of the public school system here in this state is that each year in English class, we would have to read at least one Shakespearean play. If you've ever read the play Macbeth, then perhaps you remember this particular scene where the main character, Macbeth, commits murder. He kills another character named Duncan, and right afterwards, while he's got the blood of the murder still on his hands... Uh, he begins to uh, panic and uh, he, he brings the murder weapon over to his wife and uh, that's when he shows her what he has done and uh, his wife says to him these famous words, go get some water and wash this filthy witness from your hand. Uh, but that's not good enough, because Macbeth uh, is starting to feel the evil. He's, he's, he's starting to understand the gravity of what he has done wrong. He's starting to understand that he has killed another human being, and uh, he's overwhelmed with the guilt that's coming upon him. And that's when he cries out in desperation uh, this line, Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No. No. This, my hand, will rather turn the multitude of seas to the color of blood from green to red. In other words, there's not enough water out in all of the ocean to wash the stain of this sin off of my soul. Which leads us to ask a very important question this morning, and it's this. What do you do with your guilt? That's a really... Good question. I think everybody wrestles with that question. Now they may not always wrestle with it in those terms, but they wrestle with it. There are things that we have all done in the past, and uh, we we are just kind of ashamed of those things that we've done. Like there's that thing you did when you were younger. There's that thing you did back in college. There's that thing you did with the money, and and you kind of hope that nobody ever asks you about that, and uh, maybe nobody even knows about that. But here's the problem: you know you know. And so there's this, this, you know, there's this guilt, and it's kind of like, uh, you know, you try not to think about it. You try to forget about it. Uh, but the thing is, you can't forget about it, right? Unless you have amnesia, it's just all still always right there. Now, don't get me wrong. There's mistakes that we, we make, and we look back on those, and we even maybe laugh about, and, and uh, you go, yeah, look what I did. I was so young and dumb, and uh, it's not a big deal. It's even funny. But then, then there's other things that we've done that are not funny, right? They're never going to be funny. And so we, we, we just, we know that the only word to describe the, that is, is sinful, and, and it's like this weight we carry around. It's like this cloud that we're always living underneath of, and we're back to this question, you know, what do I do with my, with my guilt? You know, as a pastor, i found that even Christians wrestle with this question on the screen. Even Christians who know about the gospel of Jesus Christ, who know about the forgiveness that we talked about in our message last week and His salvation, they still wrestle with this feeling. Even though they've heard about the Lord, they they still think, "Is is there a way I could get rid of this feeling, though? Is there a way somehow I could just, like, wash my hands of it and say, it's done, it's finished, it's clean. Is there any way that I could get this huge load of guilt off of my shoulders. Is that possible? Ladies and gentlemen, the answer to that gigantic nagging question is in our text for today. Join me in Romans chapter 4. Remember the context here uh, is that we're entering now into the second major doctrinal uh, section of the book of Romans. Where Remember in the first section, Paul has talked about justification in terms of this question, why do I need it? Now he's going to shift gears and he's going to talk about a different question in terms of justification. The question here is how do I get it? And here in chapter four, we're going to look at this very important doctrine. It's the doctrine that Martin Luther once called the article on which the church stands or falls. We're talking, of course, about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's a doctrine which is both crucial and controversial. Now, to understand this passage, there's going to be three different parts to the message today. We're going to examine that word justification, we're going to, we're going to examine those two words by faith, and then we're going to examine that one little word alone. Now, let me say up front that uh, today's message is pretty theologically deep, and, and some of you will just like dig that and love that. And then uh, others of you who are kind of unfamiliar with some of the terms here might feel a little overwhelmed with some of the theology, but let me just encourage you to hang in there and trust me because we're going somewhere with this message, and I promise I won't let you down. Uh, And and I promise you that we're not going to look at this doctrine today from from a cold, legal theology that doesn't have much practical benefit in our lives. Instead, we're going to look at something that has a very spiritually profound impact. Before we begin, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving this text for us. As we journey through the book of Romans, every week we're humbled by your call on our lives. And we thank you so much for all that you're teaching us, especially the teacher. And now today we ask that what we know not, would you teach us? And what we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us? For the glory of your beautiful name, for Christ and his reputation, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let me start with Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Paul introduces this section with a question. The question is designed for him to invite his readers to reason with him about the greatest figure in all of Israel, Abraham. Verse 1, What, shall we, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? Question mark. Paul's going to tackle this question here of, how we are justified by asking a different question. Well, how was Abraham justified? Now, there was a popular view in Paul's day that you need to be aware of. And the popular view uh, taught that Abraham was actually justified by his works. Abraham was known as like Mr. Obedience. Now, those are my words. Let me just read you the words of the rabbis in those days. It says this, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord, and well pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. And so the Jewish reader who's familiar with this interpretation of Abraham is looking at this and going, Hey, thanks anyway, Paul, for that nice theology lesson, but I don't really need it. After all, I have the way of Abraham. And then Paul critiques that way of thinking. Look at verse 2 and 3. If in fact Abraham was justified by works, then he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Here we see that Paul quotes Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. I find it fascinating when the Bible quotes the Bible, right, because it's kind of like an inspired interpretation of that text. The context back then was when God had given an unconditional, unilateral, covenantal promise to Abraham, and God basically took Abraham outside and said, look up and see all the stars and count them if you can, just like you see all those stars, so shall your descendants be. And then the text says, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Interestingly, this is the first time in the Bible the word believe or faith is ever used, which is significant. It's called the law of first mention. And so notice here the context. Paul says, this is foundational to my entire theology that Abraham believed and this was credited to him as righteousness. The word faith or the word believe will come up again and again and again in the Bible. We think about the Gospel of John uses the word believe over 90 times to describe the means by which we are saved. We think about Paul's conversation with the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 where he says, how can I be saved? What must I do? And Paul says what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so notice what Paul is doing here with this word believe or this word faith. The logic that Paul is using is he says, hypothetically, if Abraham actually was justified by his works, then he would have grounds for boasting. But yet this is not possible. As Paul has already told us in chapter 3, verse 27, there is no boasting before God. Uh, John Piper, summarizing this verse, says, uh, this basically means that such a thing is inconceivable. Now, if you want to know if you're trying to justify yourself, you don't go home and you look at all your sins. See, Pharisees know how to do that. Pharisees know how to go home and look at their sins and confess their sins. They're actually very good at that. If you want to know if you are treading into the realm of self-righteousness, go home and look at your boasting. What is that with, that causes me to boast? That's the question. Left to ourselves, all of us boast in some way. All of us strive for justification in our own way. There's like this deep need inside of our heart. This is where like, things like workaholism comes from. Where else would perfectionism come from if not here? You ever work with somebody who who's, who's kind of just says, you know, I just like things done well? This is subtle because there's nothing wrong with things being done well, right? It's just, but when you base your entire self-worth on that, then it becomes problematic. You ever work with somebody who, who can't take criticism. You try to give them a little bit of feedback, but they react defensively no matter what you say. They're always on the defensive, or they blame somebody else. No, it wasn't me, it's because of this person. What are they doing there? Self-justification. We all have this drive to find our worth, to find our identity, to justify ourselves. Consider the parent who finds all of their worth in their, the success of their children. But if you press them, you realize this really isn't about their children. This is about them. And where it comes to a head is when sometimes problems come up with the kids and they mess up later. And then the parent can't be who they need to be for their kids because they've made their children their justification. What's going on there? There's this deep need inside of every single human heart. Now... The secularist who would listen to this kind of message would say, no, Pastor Dave, that's wrong. People don't need justification. People need counseling. The problem is they've made their family or their careers or whatever too big, and that's the problem, too big of a thing. But I would say this, not so fast. Yes, there's a psychological dimension to it, but it's a psychological manifestation of a deeper problem, a deeper need To justify myself, it's inside of every human heart. We all have this need to be justified. Everybody has to say, my whole life counts for X, Y, or Z reason. This is why my life is worthwhile. You know, my... uh all-time favorite series of movies are the Rocky movies. And if you've watched the Creed series, which comes out, came out afterwards, you know that there's this character, uh, Adonis Creed and Apollo Creed actually had an illegitimate son and kind of had nothing to do with him for a while. And then eventually he, he comes onto the stage and now he's being coached by Rocky. And Rocky's asking this guy, you know, why, why are you fighting? And Adonis Creed says, so that I'll know I wasn't a mistake. What's going on there? We all have this deep need for justification. Now the question is, how do I get it? And here in the text, the scripture says you don't get it by boasting in your achievements. Instead, Paul says you have to get it another way. Notice the word credited in this passage. Your Bible might say reckoned. The phrase credited as righteousness is found many times in our chapter today. It's found in verse 3, 5, 9, 11, 23, and 24. It's an important concept in our our passage to understand. The theological word for this is imputation. What a great word. But what does it mean? Actually, it's an accounting term. It means to count as or to credit. It means to have something put into your account, which then becomes your own. Let me give you an example. I remember for my first semester at seminary, I received my first bill. And as I was showing it to my wife, I said, something strange is here. It it looks like there's been a credit applied to my account, but that doesn't make any sense since I haven't made any payments yet. So I called the seminary and called the financial office and said, what's going on here with this bill? And they said, oh yeah, thanks for calling an anonymous donor has contacted us and, and made a decision to pay for your first semester entirely here at, at DTS without letting you know about it. It was just this amazing gift where somebody believed in me and, and credited a large amount of money to my account. This is exactly what Paul says is going on in Romans chapter four. Righteousness has been credited to the one with faith as a gift. In other words, God has credited to Abraham his righteousness, meaning Abraham was not in himself righteous, but he treated him as if he were. Now at this point, let me just briefly mention that there are two basic views of justification. The Protestant view, which I'm articulating here, called imputation. And in this view, justification is like this. It's a one-time event which occurs by faith alone. We're given a forensic or legal declaration of righteousness before God as he credits Christ's merits to our account. There is another view, the Roman Catholic view, which I will try to represent as fairly and accurately as I can. And in this view, they don't use the term imputation. Instead, they use the term infusion. So take a look at this. Uh, For the Catholic view, justification is a process which occurs by faith and works We are infused with righteousness first through baptism and then through the other sacraments. See, in the Catholic view, the means of justification is through baptism, wherein a person is infused with the grace of justification. This is why you would get baptized as a baby. In this view, righteousness is infused at baptism and it remains unless you were to commit a a mortal sin. Then you would lose it, and then you would have to come through what the Council of Trent calls the second plank of justification, the sacrament of penance. The point is, in this view, justification is not a one-time event. It is a lifelong process. The process will not actually be complete until one day after purgatory when you are totally without sin. In this view, there really is no assurance of your salvation. But the critique that the Roman Catholic scholars would give Protestants is this they would say your whole idea of justification through imputation is just a legal fiction how can you believe that you're righteous when you're not actually righteous and this is why this doctrine caused the most volatile division in all of church history and split the church into like a thousand different pieces now some people ask well was all that controversy worth it i mean To be honest with you, church, I've wondered that too. Is this really worth dividing over? Aren't we, Christians, supposed to be known by our love? Aren't we, according to Ephesians chapter 4, supposed to strive to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Well, that's true. But Martin Luther once said, peace if possible, but truth at any cost. And so is controversy always a bad thing? It depends what controversies we're talking about, right? Some things are not worth dividing over. Disputable issues, quarrels in the church of matters that have no eternal importance. But what about the more serious doctrines? J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary, said this, "...controversy of the right sort is good, for out of such controversy as church history and scriptures alike teach, there comes the salvation of souls." So the reason why this controversy is important is because it involves the nature of the gospel itself. And when that gospel in any way got mixed up, even Paul confronted Peter to his face just to make sure the gospel was straight. Tom Schreiner says it well in his book called Faith Alone. He says, if we get the gospel wrong, we get the most important thing in the world wrong. That's a really helpful book on our topic today. If you're interested in reading deeper, he deals with this topic as well as the new perspective on Paul and some stuff that some of you may be familiar with. It's a great book. Now, don't get me wrong. I have many Catholic friends and family members who I have no doubt have a living, vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're talking about here, though, is the doctrinal position that is taken. I would also add I have several Protestant friends who really don't understand the Protestant view of this uh, doctrine either. But we're not talking anecdotally. We're talking theologically. I would assert this morning, the question that we have to ask ourselves is this, what is the gospel? Not what does Rome teach or not what does Luther teach. The question is, what does the Word of God teach? And I assert this morning, the Word of God teaches justification through imputation. To further solidify my conclusion, drop down with me to Romans 4, verse 6, where Paul brings another witness to the stand besides Abraham, namely the greatest king in all of Israel's history. He says this in verse 6, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Here, Paul is quoting Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is a psalm of David. The context back there had to do with David and his sin with Bathsheba. But yet, here the text tells us that this sin was forgiven. This sin was covered. This is what we call the doctrine of the remission of sins. We hear that word remission sometimes in other contexts, right? Like in the medical world, we have friends who've had cancer and we hear their disease is in remission. Or we hear this word in the financial world. When a bill collector sends us a bill, it says, please remit payment to so-and-so. If you look at that word, you see the word mission in there, which comes from the Latin missio, which means to send. And the prefix re- suggests a repetition, meaning to send again or to send away. And so a cancer which goes into remission is a cancer, at least for now, which has gone away. Or a bill... For which I've remitted payment means I have sent my money away. The remission of sins, though, is when God actually sends our guilt away. He removes it from us. Remember that question I asked you at the beginning? What do you do with your guilt? This is the answer to that question. This was the whole idea behind the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. You'll recall Pastor Bob talked about this very eloquently last week when the high priest would place his hands on the goat. He was symbolically placing your sins onto the goat. They, they literally believed that God was capable of removing their sins to the point where they believed that when the goat left, their sins left with the goat. In other words, when the goat Leaves your sin leaves with it, they don't stay with you. That's really amazing. I I don't know of any other religious system out there that has this concept of separating out my sins from me. This is totally unique to Christianity. Every other religious system, if there's a gap between you and the gods, you have to make up that gap by yourself. But Christianity says this, God has actually made up the gap On our behalf. And how else could sin have ever been removed from our account? Could I ever work hard enough to remove my guilt? How would that even work? Let's say if you're a parent and you have two sons. And let's say your older son is beating up on the younger son and one day you come home, and the older son has kind of beat up the younger son one too many times, and he's in trouble now, and um, the older son comes to you, mom and dad, and says, you know, mom and dad, I know I beat up my younger brother, but I'm gonna make it up to you by making my bed. How in the world are good works going to ever take away past sins? The only solution is the solution that we find here in our text, the solution of imputation. Take a look again at what this text teaches. And notice at the end of verse 8, it says this, the Lord will never count their sins against them. In the original language, this is one of the strongest possible ways to say this. It's called the aorist subjunctive. I don't want to bore you with grammar, but suffice it to say it's an emphatic negation. It denies the possibility of a future event. It denies even the potential of this occurring. It's saying that this cannot happen. This will not happen. He will never, 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 never count their sins against them. Micah chapter 7 says it well, right? He says, God will take your sins and throw them into the depths of the sea. I love how Corey Timboon interprets that passage. She said this God throws them into the sea and then puts up a sign that says, no fishing. That's the solution to this guilt problem. Let me ask you again. Are there any sins in your life that you have been carrying around? Is there any guilt that you don't want to bear anymore? This is the answer. Now, here's the million-dollar question. Who is the blessed man of psalm 32 quoted in romans 4:8. now at this point the catholic theologian would say the man here who has been forgiven is the man david you can read about this in robert sugenis's book not by faith alone he says that you know david was the person that's forgiven because david was forgiven after his repentance after his display of penance which is the catholic understanding of good works But the Protestant would say, no, 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 not so fast. This is not an individualistic interpretation of Psalm 32. It's corporate. Remember, it says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. Uh, Dr. James White says in his book, The God Who Justifies the Blessed Man, in Paul's context, is the believer. The one who has, having given up all hope of personal righteousness, has put his or her faith and trust in the God who justifies the ungodly. This one, he says is imputed a perfect righteousness, his or her sins, having been born substitution, man, I cannot say that word. This is the second service. Substitutionarily, there we go, by Christ on the cross, this is the blessed man. So notice, here's what we're learning here. Just in case you're you're tracking, unlike Abraham, where he was credited a righteousness with which he did not have, David is not credited with sin that he did have. Do you see that? We learn from Abraham that God added something to the account that wasn't there. And we learn from David that God took away something from his account that was there. That's imputation. That's justification. In other words, there's a double-sided imputation going on here. On the one hand, there's the removal of sin, the remission of sin. Secondly, there's the addition of righteousness. And the scripture says, those who have faith, you and me can experience both of these great blessings as gifts of God's grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says it well. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Look at that verse carefully. He, meaning God the Father, made him, meaning God the Son, sin. In what sense? Only in one sense. In the sense that he was treating him and punishing him for the sins of the whole world. He was treating the son as if he lived your life and my life. So that now, when he looks at the cross, he sees you. And when he looks at you, he sees Jesus Christ. Visualize, if you will, in accounting terms, two ledgers. On the one side of the ledger is a list of you and all of your sins. And on the other side of the ledger is a list of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Justification says, I get to exchange my ledger for his by faith. That's good news. That's the basic meaning of this word. Now, the next question we have to ask is how do we apply justification to us personally, which leads us to the second movement today, those two words, by faith. Notice that little word, buy. What does that mean? The Reformers said that is the instrumental cause of justification. Just like a carpenter uses an instrument, a hammer, to do his job, the instrument that causes our justification, they said, was faith. For this, look back at Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, where Paul offers a contrast. He says, Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Notice the contrast. The person in verse 4 is 180 degrees opposite from the person in verse 5. The person in verse 4 is the one who works. The person in verse 5 is the one who does not work. Couldn't be any more different, black and white. See the difference? And to the one who works, he says they get wages. They don't get a gift, they're an obligation, they're a remuneration. Right? You don't work all week, get your paycheck, and then walk up to your boss going, Oh, thank you so much for this gift of mercy, love, and grace. No, no, you earn that. That's your paycheck. That's wages. But notice the contrast with verse five. It says, however, to the one who does not work but trusts God, or the one who believes. This is the polar opposite of the one who works, right? So there's, there's faith on the one hand and works on the other. The one with faith doesn't come with works. There's no bargain. There's no offer. There's no bribe. There's nothing but empty hands of faith here. All they know is bankruptcy and helpless dependence. And to that one, the one with faith, Paul says they are credited with righteousness. Nothing to do with works. After all, this occurs while they are ungodly. Amazing. 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 Now, at this point in Romans chapter 4, Paul addresses two key crucial areas in the balance of our text. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read all those verses. You should read them at home, but let me summarize for you. The two key issues here and points of confusion in the Jewish faith, which we've already studied in Romans, are number one, circumcision, and number two, the law. The Jews taught that the way you get to heaven was to be circumcised and to keep the law. And Paul deals with both of those topics with respect to Abraham. First, he asks whether Abraham's faith in God's promises predates circumcision. Look at verse 10. He asks regarding his righteousness, which had been credited, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. Abraham was declared righteous in Genesis chapter 15. God gave him the sign of circumcision in Genesis chapter 17. And so the point is, circumcision came after Abraham was already justified. That's really important. And then Paul addresses the issue of the law next. With regards to the law, he says this in verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the whole world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. In other words, the law came later. Way after Abraham was justified, the law came through Moses. Abraham lived years earlier. And so the point here is that neither circumcision nor keeping the law could be the means of justification. Why? Because Abraham's righteousness came from his faith. And his faith occurred way before either one of those two things existed. James White gives a helpful illustration in his book. He says this, Like a key that only fits a particular lock, so faith is the sole key that matches the lock of grace. One can attempt to, get, to the key, get the key of works and law into the lock of grace all day long, but you'll be there jiggling the handle till kingdom come. It doesn't fit the lock. It will never work. Why? Because the law places the burden on the one who's working, whereas grace places the burden on the one who made the promise. Man, that's good. I'm preaching way better than you're listening right now. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's say this together the law places the burden on the one who is working, whereas grace places the burden on the one who made the promise. Man, that's good news. One way leads to you do this, you do that. The other way leads to God did this and God did that. One way is man-centered. The other way is God-centered. Now, In the court of law, in legal proceedings, when a witness is called to support one of the parties, but when they speak speak and actually end up supporting the opposite position, that person is called a hostile witness. Ladies and gentlemen, Abraham has become a hostile witness. The Jewish leaders thought Abraham was going to be a great example of justification by works. But in actuality, he's the perfect example that anyone can obtain salvation through faith alone. We're saved by grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Which leads us to movement three, that little word, alone. At this point, I just want to answer an objection. People look at this doctrine and they go, Faith alone? What about works? What about James chapter two? It says, Faith without works is dead. Now, there are some who misread Paul's theology of justification here and think that it supports a sinful lifestyle. In other words, if we're saved by faith alone, why bother with good works? I guess I'm good, right? So now I can do whatever I want to do. This is called the heresy of antinomianism. Nothing could be further from Paul's way of thinking. Paul is not saying works are unimportant. Works are extremely important. They're extremely valuable. They're even necessary to prove that you do have saving faith. The reformers would say faith will immediately, necessarily, and inevitably produce good fruit. But John Owen would say it this way. We are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. If a, if a true faith is there, it's alive, it's vital. This is what James is talking about. Not a dead faith. That kind of faith is not really real. Tim Keller says in his book on Romans, "quote A Christian is one who stops working to be saved. Not one who stops working. People would criticize Luther for this doctrine by, of justification by faith alone all the time. They would say, Luther, you can't teach this, man. If you teach this, people will just do whatever they please. And Luther said, that's right. Now what pleases you? See, if regeneration has truly happened, then my heart has been changed so that the God that I once rebelled against and hated, I now love. And the sin that I once loved, I now hate justification is is there because there's been a regeneration inside of my heart and God has made me come alive to the things of heaven. So saving faith is a faith which has transformed the heart to want to please God and do good works. But those works, though important, are never meritorious toward my salvation. Tom Schreiner says it this way, quote, the faith that saves leads to works but works themselves aren't the ground of the justification. Rather, they function as evidence of the salvation that is already ours. Now, let me just say this as a caveat. Protestants, I'm sorry to say, have often slandered the Roman Catholic Church by oversimplifying this issue. And they say things like Protestants believe we're justified by faith, Catholics believe we're justified by works. There's no need for the work of Christ. That is pure Slander. The Catholic Church has always taught that faith in Christ was absolutely necessary for salvation. The fundamental question was this on the basis of whose righteousness does God declare anyone just? That's the question. And the Protestants said it's on the basis of Christ alone. Our faith is the means by which we lay hold of Christ. It's not even that the faith is somehow a work that we do. Rather, the faith is just connecting myself to Jesus Christ. My faith unites me to him. Think of it like a train, if you will. Let's say salvation is like this train. When we accept Christ, we're one of those train cars that lines up behind the engine. The the engine, the front there, is Jesus Christ. We are one of the cars following behind. And the link that keeps us connected there is our faith. That's how we think about faith and justification. Now, in order to guard against any of these misunderstandings about what faith is and what faith isn't, the Reformers actually took time to describe in detail the nature of true saving faith. They said, what is faith? Does it mean just, you know, paying homage and saluting the flag to the right thing? Is that really all that faith is? And they said, no, 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 no. True saving faith has three essential components. They said the first component was the component they called notitia. Notitia is about information, it's about knowledge. This is where we get our word taking notes. It's about content. Do you know the faith? It might seem obvious, but today we're surrounded by biblical illiteracy. We don't know what we believe. It reminds me of the funny story about the guy who was asked about his faith, and they said, What do you believe? And he said, Well, I believe what my church believes. They said, What, do you, what does your church believe? He said, my church believes what I believe. <laughs> and they said, what do you both believe? He said, we both believe the same thing. <laughs> we must know what we believe. Sometimes people, you hear people say, well, it doesn't matter really what you believe as long as you're sincere. Right? That is the biggest lie that's been propagated today. What if someone's about to jump off the bridge and they think, I sincerely believe I can fly if I jump off the bridge. Believing doesn't make it so. We must believe rightly. That's notitia. The second component of saving faith, they said, is called assensus. This is the word that they use to assent or for agreement. It's not just that you know the content, right? Even the demons believe and shudder. It's that we assent with our hearts that this is true, in our passage today, Abraham is a great example of this. Abraham was not justified for believing in God. He was justified for believing God. He had a census. And then the third and final component of saving faith they called fiducia. Fiducia is about a personal trust and a personal reliance. Now, we all live with fiducia in something, we all trust in something. The question is what is my faith in? What am I depending on? What am I really trusting in? Saving faith is the beginning of one kind of trust and the ending of another. It's a leaving of trusting in myself and a beginning of trusting in Christ. It's a trust transfer, if you will. Let me illustrate. If you've ever been to the circus and seen the trapeze, it's pretty amazing. Now, there are two types of actors in the trapeze. There's the Flyers. These are the little guys, right? They weigh a buck ten, buck twenty, and they're flying all over the place. Everybody thinks the Flyers are the stars of the show. They're, they're you know, flipping all They're amazing. But then there's the catchers. The catchers are typically the bigger guys. The guys or, or girls who, who the Flyers, they, they hope they have really dry hands, right? They hope that that rosin is working that day when they, when they fling up in the air, Right? Now, even though everybody thinks the flyers are the stars of the show, I'm guessing that to the flyers, the catchers are the stars of the show. What do you think? So we have two actors, right? But there's three parts to this drama, if you will. First, the flyer must let go. If the flyer doesn't let go, there's no show. I don't know about you, but this is the hardest part for me. Let go. But if the flyer doesn't let go, there's no trapeze. Then after the flyer lets go, he has to wait and wait and wait. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate waiting. This is the flyer. He's waiting. And if the catcher doesn't get him, he's in trouble. And so this, that's the third part, right? The, the flyer gets caught. Three parts. Let go, wait, get caught. If you go home and read the rest of Romans 4 or you read the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis you're going to see the three parts to this story again and again and again. When God goes, okay, Abraham, let go. Trust me. Now wait. And then he does. Every single time, God catches him. Let go, wait, get caught. That's saving faith. And that's not just Abraham, and that's not just David, and that's not just the Apostle Paul. This kind of saving faith is for you and me. So let me ask you, church, are we ready to let go? Are we ready to let go of our own good works, our own resume, our own reputation? Are we ready to wait? Are we ready to get caught? And are we ready to trust in Christ and Christ alone? That's the message of Romans 4. Is this a cold legal doctrine with no practical benefits to our lives, though? I assert this morning the answer is absolutely not let me ask you this question. Is there anywhere in your life where you've been trying to justify yourself? Is there anywhere in your life where it's time for you to let go? Maybe it's at home. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's here at church. What would it look like for you to truly embrace the doctrine of justification by faith alone in your heart of hearts? What difference would that actually make? Can you imagine a church full of people who really embraced what we're talking about here? How would it change the way I looked at my work or my parenting? What if the whole basis for my self-worth wasn't my success or my failure, but what if it was only based on the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ? How would that change the way I handled criticism? What if when somebody criticized me, I remember where my justification comes from, and, and if I was conscious of the fact that my righteousness comes from outside of me, what do I have to be afraid of? What would it look like to let go? What is that thing in your life that you're trusting in as your justification? Justification is not just theological, it's personal. Is it possible that your accomplishments are not just your accomplishments? Is it possible that your wealth is not just your wealth? Is it possible that your beauty is not just your beauty? Is it possible that your youth is not just your youth? Is it possible your kids are not just your kids? Is it possible that your job is not just your job, but it's your justification? If so, I want you to remember. But now, a righteousness apart from the law has been revealed. Let me get the worship team to come back up to lead us in one more song. And as they do, I'll close with a famous story that Jesus told. He says in the book of Luke, there were two people that went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. Remember, the Pharisee got up and the Pharisee said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm, I'm thankful that I'm not like those sinners. I'm thankful that I'm not like those tax collectors, those people at Millington Baptist Church. You've seen them. I'm so thankful that I'm not like those people. I tithe all I have and I, I give and serve to the, to the kingdom. I, I thank you that I'm such a good person. And then the tax collector got up and he, he just hung his head down and beat his press, breast. And, and he said this, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says this, I tell you the truth that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. Now let's say that that tax collector was 20 years old when he prayed that prayer. And let's say for the next 60 years, he was 80 years old. For the next 60 years, he was full of good works. He served the Lord, he, he, he joined his church, and he, he served God faithfully for the next 60 years, and now he's 80 years old. When he comes to his 80th birthday, ladies and gentlemen, he would still have to pray that same prayer. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Why? Because when we speak about justification by faith alone, really, that's just shorthand for saying we're justified by Christ alone. We say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news. We thank you for reminding us of this great truth that we can find our identity, not in our performance, but in yours. Not in our victory, but in yours. Not in our strength, but in yours. And today we are reminded about how refreshing the good news of justification by faith alone really is and how practical it is. And so God, we confess today the ways in which we find our justification outside of you. And we commit again that we find in you all of our worth, all of our identity, and all of our righteousness. And we thank you for this great gospel and this great salvation. And we give you praise and we worship you in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior and our all in all, Jesus Christ. Amen.